0: The following words are a quote from a New York Times bestseller self-help book called How to Stop Doubting Your Greatness and Start Living an Awesome Life. This is what it says. When you learn to consciously master the energetic realm and stay in your highest frequency, you harness your innate power to create the reality you desire. In this book, Jensen Siro promises to show you how to use the force and take control of your life. The key idea is that you have within you the power to create the reality you want. According to this book and others like it, you have ultimate power over your life. Now, if I'm being honest with you, I find part of this idea, for parts of me, it's it's kind of attractive. It's attractive because I live my life in pursuit of power. What I mean is, when life spins out of control, I want the power to make it stop. So, last year, when Sabrina and I had our U-Haul stolen with all of our stuff in it, I was not comfortable in my powerlessness. I was looking for some way to regain control. And I'm guessing it's probably the same for some of you this morning. When we feel powerless, we look for a way to have power over our lives. And so, when someone comes along like Jensen Siro and offers us the ability to have that ultimate power by mastering the energetic realm, it's hard to pass that up. It is tempting to live and believe if we, that we do have this ultimate power. Another way of thinking about it is that it's tempting to live as if our lives are a giant jigsaw puzzle. We have the picture of the life we want, an idea of what the, we want the future to look like, like the picture on the box. And we think, if we can just rearrange the pieces, if we can put these two together, if I can just make this much money, get this education, get this job, live here, go to these places, marry this person, have this much in our retirement plan, then we can have the life like the perfect picture on the box. The specifics may look different for each of us, but it is tempting to live for all of us as if we have ultimate power over our lives. In spite of its appeal, though, my hope this morning is to show you that this is not true. We do not have ultimate power over our lives. Because, here's the thing, as we'll see in the book of Ecclesiastes, when we try to live as if we have ultimate power over our lives, we're living against the way things really are. We're fighting against reality. We're trying to take hold of a power that is beyond our reach. Our puzzle pieces are just holograms. To put it in Ecclesiastes terms, we are trying to grab hold of Habel. We are trying to grab a mist. And so the teacher in Ecclesiastes is going to offer us an alternative to our pursuit of power. In situations of powerlessness, he is going to challenge us to trust. He is going to, in fact, show us our ultimate powerlessness so we can trust in God, the one who does have ultimate power over our lives. You see, only when we recognize that we do not have ultimate power over our lives can we begin to trust in the one who does. So that's, that's the key idea this morning, so I'm going to say it one more time. Only when we recognize we do not have ultimate power over our lives can we begin to trust in the one who does. So as we work our way through the text this morning, the teacher is going to challenge our sense of ultimate power in three ways. First, he's going to show us that rulers have power over us. Second, he is going to show us that the future has power over us. And third, he's going to show us that death has power over us. Rulers, the future, and death all have power over us. So, with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2 through 17. If you don't have a Bible with you today, please feel free to use the Bible in front of you, the brown one in the pew. Uh, In that pew Bible, our passage is on page 476. So that's Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2 through 17, on page 476. And if you found it, uh, please stand with me, if you can, as we read God's word together. (laughs) Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. As no, as no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own heart. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time i know that it will go better with god-fearing men who are reverent before god yet because the wicked do not fear god it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing, sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This The teacher starts in verse 2 through 6 by putting us in the setting of the royal courtroom. We are part of the king's council, a group of people that would be responsible for advising the king on a whole host of matters. The king would ask for our advice on international relations, economics, trade, public perception, and military strategy. We would be responsible for telling the king what to do so that things would go well with him and for his kingdom. But it's important to understand that this isn't a democracy. You might advise the king and try to influence him, but when he's made a decision, that's it. There's no vote. It doesn't matter if all of the counselors say one thing and the king says another. The king isn't first among equals. The king has power and the council does not. Look with me in verse four. It says, since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? When the king has made a decision, no one can question it. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, the Hebrew in this passage is a little difficult, so trying to figure out the details is tricky. But let's look at what the big picture is of what's going on. The king has decided to do something that the council believes he should not. The question the teacher is addressing is how should the council respond in this situation? How should they respond when someone who has power and authority over them acts in a way they believe uh, he shouldn't? Now, I'm sure we could come up with a whole bunch of ways we might respond in this situation. I mean, maybe we would rebuke the king on the spot. Or maybe we would sit there silently and then storm out in anger once the meeting's over. Or maybe we'd take to the internet and send a passive-aggressive tweet or uh, write a strongly worded blog post. Those are always nasty. (laughs) But according to the teacher, none of these are a good idea. The council should not act hastily, but act wisely, recognizing that the king has more power than they do. As verse 4 says, when the king's made up his decision, no one can question it. But that's not to say the council doesn't have options. They can go through the proper channels and procedures to be heard. So the teacher says for them to obey the king, and then, when they can, work through the proper channels to bring about change. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. He says, Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Even in miserable situations, the wise thing to do is to obey the king until a better time to voice your objection comes along. Now, it is crucial to understand the teacher's reasoning here. He isn't saying don't be involved in politics. He's not even saying you should just go along with the political party that has power. He's simply giving the only advice that makes sense in a situation where one person has ultimate power over another. Since the king holds all of the power, what else is the council supposed to do? They have two choices. Option number one is to confront the king, and the king will just do what he wants anyway. Option number two, they can accept that they do not have ultimate power and work within the system. Now, I imagine for some of us, this is pretty difficult advice to hear. In Western culture, we have a hard time accepting the fact that others have power over us. Have you ever heard someone say, no one has the right to tell me what to do? I mean, (laughs) probably. Uh, The assumption is that no one has power, the right to have power over that person except themselves. According to Peter Berger, a Christian sociologist, this idea of the autonomous individual, the idea that Um, Everyone has the right to act independently of another's power is the central idea in the modern Western world. And yet, the autonomous individual is a mist. Parents have power over their children. Pastors have power over their congregants. Bosses have power over their employees. And politicians have power over their citizens. These differences of power exist, and they exist for you. And this is simply the way life is. We do not have ultimate power over our lives, because others have power over us. So thinking back to the self-help book I referenced earlier, no matter what frequency we vibrate to use their language, we can't change who has power over us. You cannot use the force to remove Donald Trump from power. You cannot harness your innate power to create the reality where Justin Trudeau makes different policy decisions. At this moment in history, these men simply have political power, and until another election, there is nothing we can do about it. So thinking back to our puzzle analogy, it is as if someone else is moving around our puzzle pieces. When we try to put one of our life puzzle pieces in place to get towards that picture we want, someone else comes along and moves six others. We do not have ultimate power over our lives because others have power over us. Now, you might be thinking, but, but Nathan, we have political systems in place to give people the power. It's called democracy. We have power through our voting to vote for certain policies and certain political parties. And I mean, this is true on one level, but ultimately, even this power is still mist. This is because of what the teacher says in verse 7. Look with me there. He asks, Since no, one know, no, uh, since no man knows the future who can tell him what is to come." Now, at first, this might seem like an out-of-place comment and completely unconnected with what has come before it, but it is actually one of the points that the teacher has been building up to this whole time. The whole point of the king having a council was what? It was for them to tell the king what will happen in the future. They were supposed to know the situation, think through all the various options, and then tell the king what he should do. But the teacher is a master of pointing out the obvious. No one can know the future. In this context, he's essentially saying, as a wise person in the king's council, you might think you know what the king should do. But why do you think the plans that you have will have the effect you want? No one can really know what the outcome of their decisions will be. He explains why this is at the end of our passage in verse 17. There he says, despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning, that is, the meaning of what happens under the sun. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. In other words, it is impossible to understand all of the factors in a situation to know with 100% certainty what the outcome will be. The world is just too complex. There are too many factors. We can't comprehend it. One clear example of this is the way the Jewish leaders tried to control their future at the time of Jesus. For a whole bunch of reasons, the Jewish leaders wanted to stop what Jesus was doing. They wanted to humiliate his reputation and crush his following. They wanted to stop any challenge that Jesus posed to their religious authority. They wanted to create a future where Jesus had no influence or power. And so they were willing to do it at any, by any means necessary. So they came up with a plan, invent false charges, bring him to a corrupt Roman ruler, and get him crucified. After all, nothing would be more damaging to Jesus' reputation than the humiliation of death on a cross. Nothing could send a clearer message to his followers that this was not to be tolerated. And obviously, nothing could end Jesus' challenges to their authority like his death. If there was ever going to be a plan that would create the future that the Jewish leaders wanted, you'd think it'd be this one. But the thing is, they didn't know all of the factors. The world was too complex. They missed the fact that Jesus had power over death. And so even though they carried out their plan perfectly, it backfired. Their attempt to control the future failed. It accomplished the opposite of what they wanted. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross revealed his glory. It empowered his followers, and it demolished any religious authority the Jewish leaders claimed to have. Coming back to our text, the point here is that the world is too complex for our plans. Even if you think you know what will happen, you can never know for sure. You can't know the future and tell someone else what is to come with certainty. And so because this is true, we can never have ultimate power over our lives. We can't manipulate the world around us to give us the predictable result we want. So not only is someone else moving around our puzzle pieces, but they are all interconnected. And so when we put one in the right spot, seven others move with it in unpredictable ways. We cannot be confident that moving any one puzzle piece will actually get us closer to the the picture-perfect life on the box. And while this is true of all aspects of our lives, I want to focus on the area where the teacher applies it, to politics. For many North Americans, the political arena has become our ultimate hope for social change. Let me give you an example. When Donald Trump ran for president, his campaign slogan was, Make America Great Again. Now, some believed that he would. Others believed someone else would if they were president. But notice the assumption here. Even though there's disagreement about who would make America great again, there was a common belief that the right president could. The idea is that if these people are in power and these policies are in place, then they will definitely be able to make America great. In our world, it's easy to believe that if our culture or society is going to change, then it has to happen through politics. And the thing is, we want politicians to have that power. We want them to be able to create the future that they say they can, because we want to have that power over the future, too. So we want them to have that power over the future, because we will have through it, we will have that power. And so we end up fighting our culture wars through political means. The political arena has become our coliseum, and the political parties have become our gladiators. And as they do battle, we celebrate when our gladiator gets the advantage over the other, thinking that we have just taken one step closer to the future that we desire. But the fact of the matter is, is that these political parties have much less power than we give them credit for. They cannot implement the laws, make the economic decisions, or do anything else that will create heaven on earth. They cannot do it. They do not have ultimate power. They do not know with certainty the effects of their decisions and what they will be on the future. The world is too complex. We cannot know if our political plans, or any of our future plans for that matter, will have the effect we want. This is just the way the world is. And because that's true, we can't have ultimate power over our lives. The future has power over us. So up to this point, the teacher has attempted to open our eyes to the illusion of power in two ways. First, he has shown us that rulers have power over us. And second, he has shown us that the future has power over us. But if you're still not convinced, he has one final challenge challenge that comes in verse 8. Look with me there. He says, No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. Now, as far as I can tell, this statement, it ends the debate. Boom. Done. Mic drop. Contrary to what Jensen Sincero would have you believe, you don't have ultimate power over your life because you don't have ultimate power over your death. Cancer tramples over those who believe they have the innate power to create the, ability, uh, create the reality they desire. Fatal bus crashes do not happen because their occupants are not vibrating at the right frequency. School shootings are not the result of students failing to master the energetic realm. Death couldn't care less what vibes you send out into the universe. Death is inevitable, and that's simply the way the world is. No one can avoid it. So this is what the teacher addresses in verses 11 through 13. Here he says, When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Now when I first read this, I thought there was a contradiction here. He starts off by saying that wicked people live a long time, but then he ends by saying that wicked people's lives will not lengthen like a shadow. And once again, the Hebrew is difficult here, so interpretations vary. But to the best of my ability to understand it, here's what's going on. The teacher is saying you can look around you and see wicked people live a long time. And I mean, this is true. People like Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, who's caused unfathomable devastation and wickedness through his magazines and their objectification of women. But he lived to to 91 years old. But, the teacher says, because the wicked do not care about obeying God, their lives will not lengthen like a shadow. In other words, while the wicked may live a long time, they cannot make their lives longer through their wickedness. They cannot control their death. Wickedness does not give a person power over their death. They cannot postpone it. Life will, instead, go better for those who fear and obey God. And I mean, this this makes sense, right? I don't know about you, but this is how I would naturally expect things to go. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. It's even in the self-help books. If you vibrate at positive energies, to use their language again, then the universe will give you positive energy in return. If you vibrate at negative energies, then you get negativity in return. And if this was really the way the world worked, then we might have ultimate power over our lives. As long as you were good, as long as you figured out what God wanted and obeyed it, then things would go well for you. And yet, that's not actually how the world works. And the teacher knows this. Look with me at verse 14. He says, There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. In this life, bad things happen to good people, and vice versa. Some of us may have seen the Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. It begins by telling the story of Stephen Avery, a man who spent 18 years in jail for sexual assault and murder, or attempted murder. Uh, But in 2003, DNA evidence proved he was innocent of those crimes. Sometimes innocent people are convicted of crimes they didn't commit. Mm -hmm. And there is no greater example of this than what happened to Jesus. In Jesus, we are faced with a man who was completely innocent and who willingly suffered the death of a criminal. He experienced the mocking of his neighbors, the shame of being stripped naked on the cross, the abandonment of his closest friends, the excruciating pain of death, and the wrath of God. And he deserved none of it. But he experienced it, not because he was powerless to prevent it, but because it was necessary for us. And on the other hand, sometimes very wicked people get set free because of some loophole in the legal system. Sometimes the wicked get what the righteous deserve. And there is no greater example of this than us. We deserve the shame, the abandonment, the the wrath, and the pain of death that Jesus received. But if we trust in his sacrifice, we get none of it. Instead, we get the acceptance, we get the honor, we get the welcome, and the joy of life that comes with being sons and daughters of God. So once again, going back to our text, the point is simply that we cannot control our lives or our deaths through being righteous or wicked. Going back to our puzzle analogy, one day, as we're trying to create the picture we see on the puzzle box, the table will just vanish, and all of our puzzle pieces will crash to the floor, and there is nothing we can do about it. We don't have ultimate power over our lives because we do not have power over our death. As we've journeyed with the teacher, He has shown us that we do not have ultimate power over our lives. The uncertainty of the future and the certainty of death open our eyes to see past the illusion of ultimate power. We can't control some magical source energy. We can't use the force. We can't create the reality that we ultimately desire. Life is not a jigsaw puzzle. So where does this leave us? Where does it leave us in our lives where others have power over us? The future is uncertain and death is certain. It leaves us, I think, with two options. The first option is to close our eyes and keep grasping. You can ignore the fact that others have power over you. You can ignore the fact that the future has power over you. You can ignore the fact that death has power over you. And you can keep pursuing the illusion of ultimate power. You can keep trying to grasp the mist. Or you can choose the second option, You can open your eyes and stop grasping. You can accept the fact that other people will have power over you, for better or for worse. You can accept the fact that you do not have ultimate power over your future. You can accept the fact that you do not have ultimate power over your death. And then you can stop grasping. You can trust. You can trust in God, the one who does have ultimate power over your life. This is what the teacher says after our text in uh, chapter 9, verse 1. You can look with me there. It should be on the same page. It says, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. God has ultimate power over our lives. We are in his hands. And by trusting in God, by accepting reality the way that it is, we can begin to enjoy the good things that God has given us in the present. This is why the teacher so frequently commends the enjoyment of life, as we've seen throughout this series. Uh, And he says it again in verse 15. Look with me there. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. If we stop worrying about controlling our future and having ultimate power, then we can begin to enjoy the good things God has given us in the present. And so the choice is yours. You can continue to pursue the illusion of ultimate power, or you can recognize your ultimate powerlessness. But here's the main point. Only when we recognize we do not have ultimate power over our lives can we begin to trust in God, the one who does. Now, if you're a Christian, I mean, if you're not a Christian here, you may be thinking, well, wait one second, trust in God. I don't know God, and accepting the fact that I don't have ultimate power over my life and death is one thing, but trusting God? Why would I trust him? I don't know him. Or perhaps you're a Christian, but you still struggle with this because life has been hard. Maybe your life has constantly been spinning out of control, and it's just been one thing after another. And so the idea of surrendering your sense of power and then just trusting blindly in God, that's just, that's hard. And if that's where you're at this morning, I get that. Over the past few years, being in control is not how I would describe my life. Between the two of us, my wife and I have been through cancer, through surgery, dislocated knees, losing jobs, moving across Canada, having all of our stuff stolen, and more. Life hasn't always gone the way that I've wanted it to. And so if you're struggling with trusting God, I get it. During the past few years, I have struggled to trust God. I haven't mastered trusting Him, definitely not. At times, I still struggle with trusting Him. At the heart of this question, though, at the heart of this idea of whether or not I can trust God, whether you're a Christian or not, is one simple question. Is God trustworthy? Is He someone who I can trust with my life? And I want to declare to you this morning that along with the teacher, that God is trustworthy. It is I, I have found that in the chaos of life, it is better to trust God than pursue the illusion of ultimate power. And the reason that this is true is because the one we are called to trust is Jesus, and he is trustworthy. You can trust him because when our plans for the future fail, he will never fail you. You can trust him because no matter how much power someone else might have over you, he has power over them. You can trust him that because even no matter who tries to stop his mission, he is unstoppable. You can trust him because he willingly died on the cross and took on himself our sin, our guilt, and our shame when he didn't deserve any of it. And you can trust him because he has made it possible for you to be made whole, for you to be made forgiven, pure, and clean when we didn't deserve any of it. You can trust him because he loves you. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 6-8, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. That is why you can trust him. I said before that you had a choice, but it isn't as much of a choice as it is a response. You are being invited right here right now to trust in Jesus in whatever part of your life might seem too chaotic, beyond your power or out of your control. You are being invited to give up the pursuit of the illusion of ultimate power and trust in the one who already has it. And so the question is, how will you respond? How will you respond to Jesus's invitation? Will you open your eyes to see past the illusion of ultimate power? Will you stop grasping after the mist? Will you accept Jesus' invitation to trust him in the chaotic moments of our world that only he can control? How will you respond to Jesus' invitation? Let's pray.